Welcome to the February edition of the Stevenson Harwood Pensions Podcast. Uh, this podcast series brings you the most recent pensions law developments in a practical way. This month's edition will be brought to you by myself, Dan Bowman, a consultant in the pensions team, and Hamish Kadia Karmanathan, who is an associate in the team. Hi, Dan. So a couple of weeks ago, the government published updated defined benefit funding regulations. Uh, Could you just remind us to the background for that? Yes, of course. So you may recall, Hamish, that the the Pensions Act 2021 provided a framework for a new DB, defined benefit funding regime. And the detail of what that would mean in practice was to be set out in regulations. So way back in July 2022, the DWP consulted on the initial regulations which set out much of the detail of the new funding regime. Uh, And as you mentioned, Hamish, the government has now published revised regulations following that consultation. And do we know when these new regulations will be coming into force? Yes, uh, the new regulations will come into force on 6th of April this year, 6th of April 2024, and they will apply to valuations with effective dates on and after 22nd of September 2024. And so what are the main differences between these regulations and the initial regulations published back in 2022? So there are are a few differences, actually, and these are are largely in response uh, to concerns raised by the industry over the workings of some aspects of the initial draft. I recall one concern was that the regulations as initially drafted could impact trustees' independence when choosing scheme investment. Has that been addressed in the updated draft? Yes, it has. That's one of the changes that has been made. So under the new DB funding regime, trustees of DB pension schemes will be required to have a funding and investment strategy. And uh, a key principle that must be followed when determining or revising that strategy is that schemes must be in at least a state of low dependency on their sponsoring employer by the time they are, broadly speaking, expected to reach what's called significant maturity. And this essentially means that further employer contribution should not be required to meet the scheme's liabilities after this time. So in order to address concerns that this could uh, it could restrict trustees' independence over investment decisions, the revised regs now provide that the funding and investment strategy does not create uh, a regulatory requirement to invest in the way set out in the strategy on and after the relevant date. However, worth mentioning, it is a regulatory requirement that on and after the end of this scheme year, that the scheme reaches significant maturity. The scheme must be fully funded on a low dependency funding basis. And just to say, amendments have also been made in the regs to remove the original requirement that assets had to be invested in a way that the cash flow from the investments broadly matched the payment of benefits. The intention is to allow schemes to invest a reasonable amount in a wide range of assets after significant maturity. I also understand there were some concerns around the method to be used to determine when schemes were reaching significant maturity and the impact on open schemes. Have those now been addressed? Yes, yeah, again, those have been addressed. The initial draft of the regs provided that scheme maturity would be measured in years using a duration of liabilities measure. But as you say, many in the industry were concerned that this measure would cause uncertainty since it's sensitive to market conditions. So as a result of that, the recent draft of the regs now provide that when determining this, the economic assumptions used will be based on the economic conditions on 31st March 2023. 
and the regulator's forthcoming code of practice will specify the period at which a skin will reach significant maturity. And the revised regs also now make provision for open schemes to make reasonable allowances for new entrants and future accrual in some scheme maturity calculations. And this approach should allow some open schemes to fund on the basis that they will not begin to mature soon. And are there any other changes that are of particular note? Yes, it's, it's probably also just worth mentioning that the new regs require the impact of the recovery plan on an employer's sustainable growth to be taken into account when preparing or revising a recovery plan. The requirements in the initial draft of the regs for trustees to follow the principle that the deficit should be recovered as soon as the sponsoring employer can reasonably afford, that has been retained. So it sounds like a number of industry concerns have been taken on board in the latest draft. Would that be a fair assumption? Yeah, I think that's a fair assumption, Hamish. Yeah, um, a number of concerns raised at the initial consultation stage have now been addressed in these new regs. Of course, the full picture of the new regime, we, we can't really fully understand that without sight of the regulator's final code of practice on the new DB funding regime. Uh, and we hope that that will be published in the near future. Probably also just worth mentioning that if you require any more information on this particular topic, there is a, a detailed briefing on our pensions hub. Thank you very much, Dan. For our next topic, we'll turn to look at the regulator's long-awaited general code of practice, which was published earlier this year. Yes, I understand. Again, this is a revised version following a previous draft that was released for consultation. Is that is that right, Hamish? Yes, that's right. So have there been many changes made in the final version? Yes, to quickly take you through some of the key changes that trustees should be aware of. Firstly, the annual own risk assessment requirement, or AURA, has been amended so that schemes will instead be able to carry out an aura at least every three years. This is in line with the underlying legislation. The requirement to maintain an effective system of governance for selecting and appointing advisors and service providers by running a tender process every two years has now been amended to allow for this to be done every three years. Also, the requirement for schemes to prepare a remuneration policy explaining their decision-making and rationale has been clarified. Now the requirement as to the scope of the policy will be much more scheme-specific, and the policy does not need to contain disclosure-specific remuneration figures, but rather set out a general assessment on value for money. Also, the regulator's 2018 guidance on cyber risk has been incorporated into the code in the latest draft, and this emphasises the importance of reducing the risk of a cyber attack and of including risk reduction measures in the effective system of governance. Finally, reference is now also made to adhering to the principles set out in the Regulators' Equality, Diversity and Inclusivity guidance published in March 2023. Thanks, Amish. It's good to know what those key changes are. Do, do we know when the code is due to come into force? Yes, it's due to come into force on the 27th of March 2024. In the meantime, the regulator has challenged governing bodies to use this time as an opportunity to ensure schemes are compliant with the drafts as currently laid before Parliament. Uh, and should all trustees be compliant with every single requirement in the code by this date? The new code places a lot of emphasis on compliance with the code needing to be proportionate to the type and size of scheme. We understand that the regulator appreciates some schemes may have been waiting for the final code before finalising their compliance, and therefore schemes may not be fully compliant with the code by the 27th of March 2024. However, as much of the content of the code is not new, but a reflection of previous codes of practice, the regulator does expect schemes to already be compliant with those aspects. We also understand that the regulator expects some schemes close to buyout to have significant degrees of compliance with the new code, given the key decisions relating to the scheme that occur in the buyout phase. There is a more detailed briefing again on this topic on our pensions hub as well.
Thanks, Hamish. Um, and thanks also for the, the plug for our pensions hub. So on to a recent policy paper published by the Labour Party. This is a relatively brief paper, but it does cover a lot of ground uh, from measures aimed at maintaining and improving the city of London's preeminence to the creation of local banking hubs. And it does also manage to squeeze in a few paragraphs um, setting out some of the Labour Party's pension plans. Uh, beyond some brief references to providing better advice to pension savers and some plans in respect of the local government pension schemes, Labour's pension plans largely revolve around getting pension schemes to invest more in the real economy. The paper states that one of the party's priorities is to reinvigorate our capital markets by reviewing the pensions and retirement savings landscape, enabling greater consolidation of all types of schemes. What reasons does the policy paper give um, behind this priority? The note identifies the UK's problem with what it calls de-equitisation. And what that is, is a fall in share ownership in UK companies. And the paper states that the reduction in pension scheme equity investments is a big part of this trend. Um, goes on to say that the pension schemes and insurers have gone from holding 39% of UK equities in 2000 to just 4% in 2020. This, they say, is a result of a number of causes, including, and I quote, accounting standards, regulation, tax treatment, an emphasis on cost rather than value. And the closure of defined benefit schemes to new members has shifted their risk profile to focus on guaranteed long-term cash flow rather than growth investment. And this has, in turn, led to investment in UK companies drying up and depriving pension savers of higher long-term returns on growth assets. And how does Labour plan to address this issue? Well, they've committed to undertaking an in-government pension and retirement saving review. And the hope is that this will consider all types of pensions arrangements, as well as sponsoring employers, asset managers, VCs and private equity. Uh, and in doing so, the review will seek to determine whether the current framework will deliver sustainable retirement income for individuals. And it will also identify and tackle the barriers to pension schemes investing more into UK productive assets. And does this paper set out any other pensions policies? Yes, uh, perhaps unsurprisingly, the party is committed to taking steps to enable greater consolidation across all pension and retirement savings schemes. Uh, this is, of course, very similar to the current government's own commitments in this area. But Labour has so far gone further in at least one way. It has committed to, and again, I, I quote, to give the regulator new powers to bring about consolidation where defined contribution schemes fail to offer sufficient value for their members and will ask the regulator to provide explicit guidance around fund and strategy sustainability and their expectations of a default cohort investment approach, as well as keeping the minimum thresholds for scheme performance under review to ensure continued improvement in returns where possible. So in essence, the regulators are going to be able to force the consolidation of underperforming DC schemes. Labour's also recommitted to creating a British version of the French TB scheme to allow DC schemes to invest a small amount into VC, small cap growth equity and infrastructure investments. So it sounds like this is largely a continuation of the current government's policy with a small number of maybe some radical additions, especially with regards to DC consolidation. 
uh, continuing the theme of encouraging trustees to invest in UK industries, the regulator has issued new guidance for trustees who are considering investing in private markets. The main asset classes in this market are private equity, private debt, private real estate and infrastructure and natural resources. The guidance follows on from the government's mansion house reforms announced last year, which were designed to enable the financial services sector to unlock capital for UK industries and increase returns for pension savers while supporting growth across the wider economy. It seeks to highlight the opportunities private market investments provide, making clear that, with the right advice and effective governance, private market assets can play a valuable part in a diversified scheme portfolio that aims to improve and protect safer benefits. So does the regulator recommend this investment for all schemes? The regulator recognises that different schemes with the same status will have different levels of funding, employer support, return targets and objectives, and that those factors will influence capacity and willingness to invest in some private market investments. A helpful table is therefore included which illustrates potential scheme appetite for different types of private market investments depending on those factors. The regulator points out that the guidance is not designed to tell trustees how to invest scheme assets, but rather to encourage trustees to focus on delivering value from investments and to have the right skills and expertise to consider all asset classes. Its view appears to be that while the private market investments generally carry higher costs, they can have a net positive impact on the value delivered. Thanks, Hamish. That's a, that's a useful update. And we're now briefly going to consider the recent case of Avon Cosmetics Limited versus Dalriada Trustees Limited. And this explored the validity of one of a number of amendments made to the Avon Cosmetics Pension Plan. The power of amendment in the scheme was subject to the fetter that members cannot be prejudiced by the amendment. The amendments in question closed the defined benefits section of the scheme from the closure date with members' benefits based on their period of service and salary as at that closure date. The members' final salary would then be subject to revaluation to retirement. The amendments had the effect of improving the financial position of a certain group of members while disadvantaging another group. And this is because during the period between the closure date and the date of retirement, certain members would have seen their salary increase at a rate greater than the revaluation rate, whereas other members would experience the opposite. This was therefore in breach of the amendment power fetter in respect of those members who would be disadvantaged. Did the court therefore find the amendment invalid? So the question asked of the court was whether the amendment was either wholly invalid or partially invalid in respect of only those who were prejudiced. The first step towards partial validity required demonstrating a conceptual difference between valid and invalid exercises of power, and the judge was satisfied that the prejudiced and non-prejudiced groups were sufficiently different and identifiable. The judge also concluded that the objective intention of the amendment was to close the DB section to future accrual. The FETA prevented the amendment taking effect in respect of the disadvantaged members, but the amendment in respect of the advantaged members was within the overall objective intention of the amendment. Accordingly, partial validity should be upheld. The amendment was therefore valid in respect of the advantage members only. So this sounds like this is another case in a series which shows that the extent to which a scheme can close to future accrual or break a final salary link will depend on the terms of the amendment power within the scheme. Indeed, Hamish. Yeah, this is one more to add to the ever-growing mix of cases on that particular subject matter. So for our final topic, we're going to look at another case. This time it's Newell Trustees Limited versus Newell Rubbermaid UK Services Limited. 
And here the court considered whether the transfer of members from a DB section of a scheme to a DC section based on age, whether that firstly breached the scheme's restrictive amendment power and secondly, whether it amounted to age discrimination. So what happened in that case? So the Parker Pension Plan was, until 1992, a defined benefit plan. In 1992, a DC defined contribution section was introduced and members of the plan under 40 years old were transferred from the DB section into the DC section. The scheme's amendment power contained a courage style proviso such that an amendment could not be made which would prejudice or impair the benefits accrued in respect of membership up to that time. So does this mean that the transfer of members from the DB section to the DC section was invalid? No, not in this case, Hamish. The judge concluded that the conversion was implemented validly, stating that the restriction in the amendment power protected the value of members' benefits rather than the method of calculation. The judge also stated that the wording of the restriction, specifically the word would, meant that it could not be shown the member would be worse off in financial terms due to the conversion. So was the scheme able to break the final salary link of the DB members? No, both parties agreed that an impact of the conversion meant that the final salary link had been broken and the judge, in line with the decision in Courage, confirmed that an underpin to maintain the final salary link was required so that the conversion was within the scope of the amendment power. And as members who were transferred from the DB section to the DC section were under 40 years old, did age discrimination not play a part in this change? Uh, Again, Hamish, no, not in this particular case. It was argued that the change breached age discrimination laws that were established in 2006 and that, as a result, trustees would be obliged to pay benefits which were less favourable to those younger members. But the judge decided that there was no age discrimination, either in the rules of the scheme itself or in the way that the trustee is bound to act at the point where benefits are paid to the members. The judge noted that the decision was taken in 1991-1992 and even if that amounted to a form of age discrimination, it was lawful to do so at the time it was done. The trustee is now obliged to pay benefits in accordance with the relevant section's rules, irrespective of how the member became a member of that section and irrespective of their age. Thanks very much, Dan. Well, that's it for this podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, If you'd like any further information on any of these topics, we discuss all of these topics in more detail in our February snapshots and our briefings at www.pensionshub.com. And of course, our Stevenson Harwood Pensions team is always on hand to assist you. You can listen to this podcast again and subscribe to the series on iTunes or on our Pensions Hub. Please join us again in March for the next instalment.